Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. December 19th, 2020. Trump puts the January 6th coup into motion with the big protest in D.C. tweet. Be there. We'll be wild. December 19th, 2023, the Colorado State Supreme Court throws Trump off the primary and general election presidential ballots in its state because he engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States. Be there. We'll be wild. Colorado's decision in defense of the Constitution, in defense of the 14th Amendment's disqualification clause, and in defense of the survivors of the Civil War who wrote it, declaring Trump ineligible. That decision is obvious and glorious, and it is only the opening salvo in a drama that will, no matter its ultimate end, gradually reduce Trump and damage Trump and wear Trump down and wear Trump out. And yet it almost buries the lead. The lead is the timing. The timing. Colorado state law requires that by January 5th, 17 days from right now, the secretary of state must certify which candidates are on the Republican and Democratic presidential primary ballots and which are not. 17 days. The Colorado Supreme Court included a stay of its own order of ineligibility for Trump until January 4th. But the U.S. Supreme Court still only has 17 days to receive, decide to rule on and overrule that decision. And among that 17 day stretch, two holidays, two Saturdays and two holiday Sundays. Still, it is a long shot that no appeal will be filed. And also by Colorado law, if one is filed, 
No matter whether the national Supreme Court has or has not ruled by January 5th, Trump would remain on the Colorado ballot because the January 5th certification date was not picked to satisfy the desires of the framers of the 14th Amendment or Trump or anybody else. It's done to make sure the ballots get printed on time. What happens if the national Supreme Court somehow does not overrule the Colorado Supreme Court? yet waits until after January 5th to make that overruling or non-overruling clear. Then Trump would be on the printed ballots, yet the state court verdict would hold and he would be ineligible to be on the general election ballot, which would mean that on March 5th, Colorado Republicans would go to the polls with the opportunity to vote in the Republican primary for a man forbidden by the courts from being elected or from being on the Colorado general ballot in November. 17 days will be wild. This is the point at which to clarify why the Colorado decision is not the first one to bar Trump after Arizona, Michigan, and Minnesota ruled in Trump's favor. Arizona, Michigan, and Minnesota judges all ruled that they did not have the power to remove Trump from a political party primary. They never got around to the question of Trump in the actual election, and they still have not. Those issues in those states were left open to perhaps be decided later if and when Trump won the Republican nomination. What Colorado has done is cut to the chase. Right now, he is off the electoral ballot. You all do what you damn well please about your little Republican primary. And how about that Vivek Ramaswamy pledging to withdraw from the Colorado primary unless Trump is restored? I am left wondering, wait... He believes that's somehow a reason to restore Trump to the primary ballot? God, man, you've made us two for two. Anybody else in that field want to jump off the cliff with Trump or just Viv over here? Back to the point. What was most impressive about the actual decision written by the Colorado Supreme Court was that it attacked the issue from the outside in starting large and going small, denying the state the right to preclude from its election a candidate that the Constitution says is ineligible because he participated in an insurrection would also, quote, mean that the state would be powerless to exclude a 28-year-old, a non-resident of the United States, or even a foreign national from the presidential primary ballot in Colorado. Exactly. There are aspects to presidential eligibility that are self executing, self-activating, automatic, inarguable. You damn well can go to court to make it clear that the 28-year-old non-resident is ineligible to be president and thus ineligible to be on the general ballot or the primary ballot. And then the Colorado court, as the kids say, drilled down and revealed the crappy little legal trick devised first by who else? Chief Justice John Roberts in an unrelated case in 2010. The crappy little legal trick that is Trump's only defense here, that the 14th Amendment applies only to those who took an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution. But whoops, the president is not an officer of the United States. Because clearly, 
The men who paid to keep this Constitution alive with their blood and the blood of their sons and brothers and fathers and friends, they wanted to make sure that Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis could become president of the United States someday just cause. It is imbecilic. Colorado Supreme Court did not rely on the obviousness of that imbecility, however. There are plenty of authors of the amendment to bring into this debate, even at this late date, and the court found a good one. It took co-author Congressman Sam McKee of Kentucky, who wrote and spoke of barring the insurrectionists of the Civil War, quote, from all political power in the nation. The court added, while nothing in Representative McKee's speeches mentions why his express reference to the presidency was removed from the amendment, his public pronouncements leave no doubt that his subsequent draft proposal still sought to ensure that rebels had absolutely no access to political power. Colorado did not note the other inarguable part of this, but I will once again. The 14th Amendment, as cobbled together by Congressman Samuel McKee and Congressman John Bingham and Senator Lyman Trumbull and Senator Thaddeus Stevens and all the others, is clearly automatic. It is the default position. If it were not self-executing, why would they have attached the actual key words to the third clause? Why do those 14 words at the end exist? What do they mean if they do not mean you start out guilty and you have to prove your innocence? Quote, Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disqualification. If the 14th Amendment was not automatic, why would you need a postscript permitting the House and the Senate to override it under special circumstances by a two-thirds vote. It is not a court's right to overrule it any more than, as Colorado underscored, it is a court's right to say, well, we're going to pass on the minimum age for this guy or the U.S. residency for that guy or the birthplace thingy for this guy. The states do not have the right to put Donald Trump or any of the other January 6th insurrectionists or insurrectionist plotters on the presidential ballot, on any ballot. The Constitution is explicit, and there is already a mechanism by which Trump or one of the others could get on the ballot. But there is only one mechanism, and it is not the Supreme Court. There is only one action by only one group by which Trump can override the 14th Amendment. And it's exactly what Bingham and McKee and Trumbull and Stevens and the others wrote in 1866 while they were still finding and burying corpses killed by insurrectionists. Congress may by a vote of two thirds of each house. The coming Supreme Court review of the ruling is almost automatic, and it is hard to believe the court won't remember who pays for its RVs. Someone once described the Supreme Court as that group that, depending on the circumstances, either defers to precedent or says precedent is wrong, or demands originalism unless it disagrees with originalism, depending on who appointed the lawyers. But as I suggested in the bulletin last night, what happens when it's not just Colorado in January, but another state in February? 
disqualifying Trump and two in March disqualifying Trump and three in June and six in October and two the day before the election and the spring and the summer having been spent documenting what the framers of the 14th Amendment really meant and how they managed to keep the Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens out of office even after he'd been elected to the Senate and how the co-author, Congressman Bingham, had helped to prosecute the men and the woman who conspired with John Wilkes Booth to assassinate Lincoln and hang half of them, including the woman, and how if they left a specific reference to the president out of the disqualification clause, it was because in their time the president was not nearly as important as one good congressman or a senator, and that they doubted that the nine of them before and after Lincoln would even still be remembered by now. What happens if all of those cases are overruled by the Supreme Court and the states say, enough of your bullshit, John Roberts. There are lawyers and constitutional experts who openly said last night that they expect the ruling to be overturned by this Supreme Court and maybe by nine to nothing because this has never happened before and there are no precedents and 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 the Supreme Court is on thin enough ice as it is after Alito got the draft of the repeal of Roe v. Wade leaked and tried to blame it on everybody else. And then he actually got Roe v. Wade repealed. And after Alito's corruption scandal hit, and after Clarence Thomas's corruption scandal hit, and after his second corruption scandal hit, and his third, oh, and the new one, and the next one, the Supreme Court is this close to being ignored by a state or states. And don't say it can't happen. Lincoln ignored the Supreme Court on a weekly basis. And of course, the reason that these decisions and this judicial corruption and all the money goes to the Republicans and not to the Democrats is because they had David Axelrod comment on CNN about the Colorado ruling in its immediate wake. And Axelrod said he had mixed emotions because he thinks that if it is upheld, the Colorado ruling would, quote, rip the country apart. And you wonder exactly what country he was living in from the day that Trump announced his campaign by slandering every Hispanic and every immigrant in the history of this country through the day Trump almost literally ripped the country apart on January 6th. I mean, David, who would be ripping the country apart over Trump's eligibility to be president again? Or the other commentators who say, sure, I don't want to see Trump in the White House again, but but not doing it this way. And you flash back to John Dickinson at the Continental Congress saying, sure, King George III has been unpleasant and he's taxed American colonists into bankruptcy and starvation and he had his soldiers shoot a lot of us. But I mean, do we have to, you know, insult him and disparage him and, and golly, try to declare independence from him? Somebody could get hurt. I've written another petition to the king, and I know he hasn't read the last 20 of my petitions, but I'm sure he'll read this one if my penmanship is good enough and you wonder if David Axelrod is descended from John Dickinson. How many different ways do you think we have of preventing an ever more Hitler-like, self-proclaimed future dictator from turning this country totalitarian, Dave? 
I mean, you wouldn't want to rip the country apart just to save democracy and freedom and to prevent concentration camps and mass deportations and ethnic cleansing and the legal indemnification of all 700,000 policemen in the country who then become loyal to Trump alone. I mean, Dave, can't we solve this with a strongly worded letter to the Times? I said this last night, and I will say it once more. There is one chance in a million Colorado will not be overturned by the Supreme Court. But there are 20 chances out of 50 that there will now be other court rulings like Colorado, and each one will be more dangerous, more precipitous of potential violence for the Supreme Court to corruptly overrule them all. Because every ruling will take another hunk out of Trump Just like the New York business fraud trial has clearly diminished his sanity, just like the pre-trial saber dance with Jack Smith is clearly diminishing his coherence, just like that big brass ring over there in the near middle distance, an actual conviction of a felony by a jury would, per poll after poll, eliminate as much as one-third of Trump's support among Republicans. If we have learned nothing else, it is that Trump is not going to be felled by one strategic play. He's going to have to be stopped like Gulliver in Lilliput. Everybody with every piece of string and every yard of rope they have is going to have to tie him down and keep him tied down forever. The civil cases, the federal cases, the state cases, the 14th Amendment cases... Hell, even David Axelrod's mean letter to the Times. I had already been smiling all day before Colorado because as obvious as this seems, as obvious as, say, the 14th Amendment is, this also isn't automatic. Trump is morphing completely and now rapidly into Hitler. Only... More like the Hitler at the end, who was convinced he was beating the Allies, even though it was just him and Ava and all those generals who were counting the steps to the bunker escape hatch whenever he wasn't watching them. Trump denied the Hitler comparison last night in the way a five-year-old would. At Waterloo, Iowa, he explained to the witless, gullible cult members before him and the media stenographers, quote, I never read Mein Kampf which may be for once literally true. Of course, it isn't the flex that Dementia J thinks it is. As you already know from listening here, as long ago as 1990, Trump admitted what Ivana had said about him was true, that he kept a Hitler book near his bed. It was not Mein Kampf. It was, according to the guy who gave it to him, My New Order, the collection of Hitler's best speeches published long after his death. Trump read that. Trump promptly returned to his theme last night and to providing evidence that, yeah, he is Hitler and he is quoting Hitler. The immigrants coming across the border, he said again last night, are, quote, destroying the blood of our country. They're destroying the fabric of our country, unquote. If so, they are clearly starting by destroying what little is left of Trump's sanity. And that is not why I was smiling. This is, guess who's mentioning all of this? Quote, every time he says it, we're going to call it out, unquote. Michael Tyler, 
communications director of the Biden campaign to Politico. He's going to echo the rhetoric of Hitler and Mussolini, and we're going to make sure that people understand just how serious that is every single time. Since if the anti-Nazi pushback is not coming from a Biden spokesman, the weary and not the sharpest tools, political media, industrial complex people will ignore it. Yeah, yeah, he's Hitler. I wrote that last week. So what? They got Hitler eventually. This is essential. And by the way, the Biden campaign throwing Mussolini into the mix is a superb bonus. It evokes the mango Mussolini nickname and the fact that Trump's childish ego and rancid smirk could have been stolen directly from the Italian dictator. And it's always useful to remind the world and the malefactors like Trump what happens ultimately to dictators, especially Italian dictators. Julius Caesar stabbed by his own colleagues as many as 35 times, as many as 60 conspirators. Caligula murdered by his own Secret Service. Mussolini, shot near Lake Como, driven in a van to Rome, his corpse hung by its feet from the roof of an Esso gas station. So far, the president himself has distanced himself from the comps, in public anyway. Mr. Biden has not appeared in quotes, slamming Trump's vermin language or blood-poisoning imagery cribbed from Hitler. On the other hand, do we really assume the quotes from the private Los Angeles fundraiser a month ago in which Biden made the link? Trump calling people vermin, claiming the blood of the nation, things Hitler said. We think those quotes got out of the private Los Angeles fundraiser without the knowledge of the campaign or the candidate. However, last night, Vice President Harris jumped from off the record to on the record. It is carefully parsed. It has so many conditional phrases. It sounds like something from grammar class, but it gets the point across. Quote, it is language that is meant to divide us. It is language that I think people have rightly found similar to the language of Hitler. Unquote. Again, great. Thank you, Vice President Harris. It should be the president and only the president who goes out and makes the first direct statement that Trump is quoting Hitler, Trump is validating Hitler, Trump is becoming Hitler. You do not leave that to anybody else, and you don't go sideways around it. The vice president covering herself in the cloak of many people are saying is fine. Biden, though, is at his best when he is angry but controlled and yet utterly honest. Incidentally, the president and the vice president and you and me, we have all gotten the all clear to invoke Hitler from Godwin of Godwin's Law. Michael Godwin, the man who wrote in 1990 that the first person to carelessly invoke Hitler or the Nazis has lost whatever the argument is. Godwin always notes people forget that adjective carelessly. Quote, dehumanizing rhetoric is a hallmark of Hitler's rhetoric. Godwin said Sunday, Trump is opening himself to the Hitler comparison. Trump knows what he's doing. You could say the vermin remark or the poisoning the blood remark. Maybe one of them would be a coincidence, Godwin continued. But both of them pretty much make it clear that there's something thematic going on, and I can't believe it's accidental, unquote. And if Mr. Godwin still somehow hopes it is accidental... If President Biden does, if anybody does, they are saved from any further need to doubt or disbelieve, courtesy of no less a blithering idiot than Senator Tommy Tuberville. Amid the PAC's 
of scurrying Republicans trying to get away from the Hitler they have chained themselves to. I mean, you heard the Staten Island Congresswoman, Nicole Maliotakis, cover herself in excrement, explaining that, sure, Trump said vermin and poisoning, quote, but he never used the word immigrants. Senator Koch has now complained that Trump did not go more Hitlerish. Maybe two Hitlers, maybe two Hitlers and a Mussolini at an SO station. Quote, I'm mad he wasn't tougher than that. Because if you're seeing what happens at the border, we're being overrun. Tommy Tuberville has spent virtually his whole life in Arkansas and Alabama, and I know he does not know this, but neither of them has a foreign border. And of course, Tommy has lost too many games without a helmet. But for a Republican to come out and slam Trump for not being enough like Hitler is perfect. And lastly, on the dementia scoreboard, Trump continues to descend. He has already lost his ability to identify who is who and where is where and which world war is which world war. Now he's beginning to blank on when is when. Trump is really mad at the Texas Congressman Chip Roy. So I'm agnostic here because Chip Roy is also nuts. But Chip Roy endorsed DeSantis. So Trump has now called for Chip Roy to be primaried. And all bad news, Dementia Jay, the deadline to file for the Texas congressional primaries was, uh, checks notes, a week ago Monday, December 11th. And you know where this is going, right? At some point soon, Trump will begin to deny that today's date is today's date. This isn't December 20th. It's still the 11th. Mighty Oz has spoken. Also of interest here, who's the most important baseball player ever signed by the Dodgers? Jackie Robinson. Now think real hard. I mean, they've been around since 1884. Jackie Robinson, he broke the color barrier in 1947. Now, think carefully about your answer, self-proclaimed baseball hip insider on Fox. Jack Roosevelt Robinson, R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N. Holy crap, the guy didn't say Jackie Robinson. That's next. This is Countdown. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. 
Last question. I promise you have to go. I have to go. But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Come on, Countdown. Well, if we're talking about the Colorado Supreme Court and the 14th Amendment and the conservatives and how they have had their way with this country for a quarter century, lawful or not, especially at the Supreme Court, maybe it's time to mention the time that I dated a conservative pundit who, A, confirmed the vast right-wing conspiracy postulated by Hillary Clinton, denying only that it was vast, and B, was herself a former clerk to a Supreme Court justice and who, C, took me on our first date, out of two dates, to the Supreme Court where she arranged for me to sit in Clarence Thomas's chair. That's right. My ass has been where Clarence Thomas's ass always is. Next, things I promised not to tell. Put that on my tombstone. First time for the Daily Roundup of the Miscreants, Morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, worse, Ben Verlander of Fox Sports, brother of baseball pitcher Justin, not quite his brother's equal on the field, washed out in the minors, pretty much one of those dime-a-dozen online baseball bros now, wearing the baseball cap backwards with the hot takes who occasionally turns one of them into something dumb but has now transcended that and said something dumb for the ages. Breaking down Shohei Otani joining the Dodgers as a free agent. Verlander saying, and this is the sell line in the promotion for his podcast or vidcast or whatever it is on Twitter X, on the Fox site, elsewhere. Ben Verlander saying of Otani, quote, it's the most important signing in Dodgers history. I have no problem saying that, unquote. 
Well, sir, you probably should. You would think even Ben Verlander would have heard about the Dodgers signing of Jackie Robinson. Remember? Breaking the color line that had kept dark-skinned people out of baseball, almost all foreigners since 1884. But no, that's old-timey stuff. Moron. The silver, the worser, Trevian Cootie, who apparently does not keep up with her Rudy Giuliani news, and apparently went on Instagram Live and threatened a witness in the trial of the Trump 19 in Atlanta, and apparently it was Ruby Freeman. Ruby Freeman, now co-owner and operator of Rudy Giuliani. And Trevian Cootie was one of the 19ists herself, and she was the publicist for Kanye West and R. Kelly, I guess because O.J. Simpson didn't have a publicist. Anyway, her lawyers representing Miss Cootie have dropped her as a client. They notified the judge of that yesterday in Atlanta. Several analysts are inferring that they got out of Dodge because this means District Attorney Fonnie Willis is going to file new charges against her, probably for the little business of the threat. Also, they may have dropped her because she pronounces her name like, ooh, she has cooties. But our winner, the worst, Jason Whitlock. I was never this guy's friend or colleague, really, but I had him on my ESPN show right after we premiered a decade ago, and I'm beginning to wonder now if he was also this wrong this often about sports. Whitlock has become one of the resident self-loathers or loathers on the right, sort of a loafer and a loather on the right. He's gotten mixed up with Glenn Beck, and he was one of the speakers at Turning Point USA's America Fest. And yes, all these idiots do is have fests and conferences because that's how they all convince each other that this cult bullshit is not cult bullshit. Anywho, Whitlock got up at America Fest and identified the real crisis facing Americans at America Fests in America today, the fact that women can vote. Whitlock was pining for the good old days before the 19th Amendment, before women voted, and quoting him, when we were a culture that really valued family and really understood the natural order that God intended, man serving God, woman following man who serves God, man and woman developing and nurturing children, you only needed one vote per household because that vote was about the entire family as they have destroyed our family structure and made this all an individual pursuit. Not everybody has to have a vote, unquote. So now we know what Whitlock's role is in the deeply stupid state. He's going to be the one who's going to advocate for taking the vote away from women in this country. As usual with these clowns, Jason Whitlock is primarily cherry-picking history because it's funny that he thinks the founders who said God also told them that blacks were slaves or at best should not be allowed to vote even if they were casting a vote on behalf of a beautifully structured family or that blacks would only be counted in the population as three-fifths of a human being. But go on, Jason, tell me about a culture that really valued family and really understood the natural order that God intended. Jason, the founders were right about oppressing women, but not about oppressing African-Americans, Whitlock. Two days. Worst person in the world, although Ben Verlander was close. Oh, my God.
Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. My tattered little diary from 1997 informs me that 25 years ago this week in the second month of my news career at MSNBC, one of my guests, for the first time, was one of the network's original contributor commentators, original MSNBC talent, Laura Ingram. This began a process that ended in us going out on two dates. And something she told me on the first of these dates has resonated with me literally every month since and is relevant to politics today. I I know, I know, I, I, I did not so much date her as survive her. Even then, before 9-11 helped to slide her cheese off her cracker, I find a diary entry referring to her as Hurricane Laura. That was March 15th, 1998. Beware the Ides of March, Julius Caesar. I didn't. Honestly, and God help me, nearly 48 years of dating, I have not been a kiss and teller. I have dated, I don't know, dozens, a couple of hundred actually. 13 seriously with maybe three exceptions you don't know any of their names one of them now a political writer basically lived with me for three years i keep that confidence 
So why am I telling this story, violating that? Because not three months after that first date, when we were still going out, Laura Ingram asked me if she could look at a speech I was going to give at Cornell's graduation weekend and offer suggestions. This is so long ago, I literally faxed it to her. Sure enough, a couple days later, I'm watching Imus in the Morning, which was televised by my network, MSNBC, and there on his desk in front of him is the faxed copy of my speech, and he is reading from my fax. I could recognize the exact sequence of the vertical stripes my cheap fax machine used to streak all of my outgoing pages with. Laura used to go on his show a lot, so to curry favor with Imus, she sent him the speech without asking me. As I told her that day, all bets are now off. So I've told parts of this story before, like she had been a Supreme Court clerk for Clarence Thomas, and our first date consisted of taking me on an insider's tour of the court and having me sit in his chair. In tribute to him, I did not say or do anything constructive. She then cooked me the largest steak I had ever seen that did not have a rodeo cowboy riding on it. And we watched a woman, later discredited because she could not keep her stories straight, go on 60 Minutes and make allegations against Bill Clinton. This is my perfect date, Laura told me. Seared into my memory. But the important Laura Ingram story, sitting there in the middle of all the debris, I don't think I've ever told this. The first date was only about six weeks after the then First Lady Hillary Clinton got on the Today Show and blamed the, at best, exaggerated scandal about her husband and Monica Lewinsky on the, quote, vast right-wing conspiracy. That is so stupid, Laura said that night as she showed me her small office upstairs. I expected that she was about to decry the idea that Republicans would exploit television, talk radio, and the brand new internet to try to bring down a president from the other party, and I said so, naive little boy that I was. No, not that. Of course we're doing that. She was kind of offended that I doubted the conspiracy part. I explained I'd only been covering politics for two months. At the end of the day, she said, end of the day, constantly. At the end of the day, it's the vast part. It's not vast. Vast right-wing conspiracy. Why, I bet there's not even 30 of us. Laura Ingram then explained that she was essentially the central desk for what she called the miniature right-wing conspiracy. She showed me a printed page that had the fax numbers of about two dozen people. There at the top are the sources, she said. There was Ted Olson, the attorney, founder of the so-called Arkansas Project and the husband of Barbara Olson, a constant presence as a talking head on cable news. She later died on 9-11. Everybody liked her. There were several numbers in the office of independent counsel Ken Starr. One of them read B. Kavanaugh. I said, who's that? She said, nobody important. The only other name I remember was Spencer Abraham, who then was a senator from Michigan. She said they, including the people in Ken Starr's office, sent her all the rumors, the ideas, stuff about Clinton, stuff they made up, and she distributed them to the other parts of the list. That's these numbers. One number was marked Hannity Radio, another Hannity TV, O'Reilly Radio, O'Reilly TV. There was one for Limbaugh. There was one marked Justice Thomas, and I pointed to it. He likes to stay informed. Now, maybe the most important name's not on that list. That's Matt Drudge. 
She said Matt Drudge used all of her stuff, but he didn't want any of it to be traceable. Very big on not traceable. So I never fax it to him, she said. I just give it to my brother. This is when she still liked her brother. He sees Drudge all the time. He gives the stuff to Drudge. Now, over here is my baseball collection. See, there were reasons to go out with her. At the time, I could think only of an old cartoon I had once seen. It was an octopus working in the post office, using all eight of its limbs to sort the mail. But every couple of weeks, it dawns on me afresh that I was actually a witness to one of the earliest configurations of the machinery. And there is no doubt today whether it is vast or miniature. It's vast. The machinery that links the right-wing politicians and those who are supposed to be above the fray, like Supreme Court justices and special prosecutors and people like that there, with the right-wing publicity outlets that pretend to be news organizations like Fox and Drudge and OAN and Newsmax, and the ones that don't even pretend, like those who succeeded Limbaugh. This machine is, in fact, everything that your typical paranoid, conservative, Republican, fascist, Trumpist thinks is being run by George Soros or Bill Gates or Dr. Fauci or me. You want to be able to say there are reports or accusations about some Democrat or liberal figure or celebrity? Well, somebody puts a rumor in at one end of the machinery or somebody makes up a rumor at one end of the machinery. It is then sent to dozens of other people. They repeat it. Voila. Suddenly there are reports. The reports then get fed back to Fox News or Breitbart or the Wall Street Journal or the Supreme Court. Or they're just tweeted by a thousand bots simultaneously. You want to push this ancient, racist, anti-Semitic paranoia called the Great Replacement, but you, you want it to come out washed, clean enough that soulless opportunists like Elise Stefanik and J.D. Vance can say it aloud on the campaign trail without forfeiting their candidacies, this is the machinery. And I saw the machinery when it was just a list of 20 and 30 people. And at that moment, I barely recognized the importance of what I saw. Then again, I was still on that night recovering from not just the giant steak, but something far more visceral. Earlier that day, as we were leaving the Supreme Court, Laura Ingram had boasted about getting even with an ex-boyfriend by going back into what had been their house and putting up exact copies of all the photos of the two of them together that he had taken down from his walls. And when he got smart and changed the locks, she went back again to finish the job, found her key didn't work, so... Naturally, as you would, she stuffed his garden hose through the mail slot of his front door and turned on the outdoor spigot. $10,000 worth of hardwood floors ruined, she said proudly, and part of me screamed, flee. Flee now. I didn't flee. Later, as I tried to sleep, two noises kept me awake snoring, not my own, and Laura's dog. Laura's dog kept talking in his sleep. I mean, almost in syllables. Like that. It was something like 25 degrees out, and I was on the second floor, 
And yet I resolved that if her dog really did make that last leap to formulate actual syllables, and it turned out her dog was the one telling her what to do, I was simply going to leave by the window without bothering to open it first. The next morning, Laura and I walked her dog. We got to an empty field. She threw a tennis ball. He went and got it. She cocked her arm back again. He took off, loving life as he did. She did not throw it. He went 40, 50, 60 feet, then stopped and looked back at her with such disappointment and, and even a sense of betrayal. And she said loudly, without a trace of affection for him or anything else, wait for it, which is when I realized I was being courted to be the next dog. A few weeks later, back home in New York, I got home from working an early morning shift, filling in for the commentator Paul Harvey at ABC Radio. I was just waking up from a tortured nap when the phone rang. Aunt Lara, I'm downstairs. We're going to my old law firm's party at the museum. I said I was exhausted. We're going. Or I'll just stay here at this payphone outside your place calling you all night. <sighs> we went. The next option opportunity probably was going to be me on the wrong end of a hostage drama. Turned out she was not invited to her party. We're crashing it. I'm going to drink heavily. Frankly, it was a great party. I got to meet Hillary Clinton's mother and her brother. And if you think the fascists are completely sincere about everything, even their neuroses... And their paranoia, no, Laura Ingram hugged Hillary Clinton's mother and Hillary Clinton's brother. They seemed to be friends. Later, we wound up meeting friends of her in the Oak Bar at the Plaza Hotel where she kept drinking. I was astonished. After about her sixth Cosmopolitan, on top of everything she'd had at the party, she began to droop, her head nodding like a bobblehead doll. Her friends said, okay, that's it. We'll take care of the check. You take care of her. She had not gotten a hotel room or anything. And if you've ever heard of anybody who needed to be poured into a cab because they were so drunk, you don't really know what that means until you have to pour them into a cab. Frankly, I wanted to put her in a hotel somewhere, but the spectacle would have made the gossip pages. She basically could not stand up. So I took her to my apartment, put her into my bed, and I went and slept on the couch at the far end of the apartment, which is where I was hours later in the morning when she woke me up because she came parading through using my phone to call my assistant to get a car sent to my address to take her to the airport and to make sure that everybody in my office knew she had stayed overnight at my apartment. And all I kept thinking was, why didn't I follow my instincts? My instinct said flee. I fleed not. Of course, if I had fled, I would have missed seeing the telephone tree of the miniature right-wing conspiracy, wouldn't I? all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully Studios at the Olbermann Broadcasting Empire here in New York. 
Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel arranged, produced, and performed most of our music. Mr. Chanel handled orchestration and keyboards. Mr. Ray was on guitars, bass, and drums. And it and they were produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including some of the Beethoven compositions, were arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music, courtesy ESPN Inc., written by Mitch Warren Davis, called the Olderman theme from ESPN2. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Richard Lewis, and that means everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 1,079th day since Dementia J. Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Use the Insurrection Act against him and them and convict him while we still can. Also, the 14th Amendment is surprisingly useful, isn't it? The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.